Continuing from where I left off, a few more simple examples of what is meant by intimacy of practice. Nature. When we come to nature, there's a, a famous Chinese poet, Li Po, many of you probably know this simple verse. We sit together, the mountain and me, until only the mountain remains. For those of you who are new to this way of looking at things, it's Li Po's body is there, and in a certain sense, he's never more alive, never more aware, never more there. But what is not there is the notion that Li Po, I, am watching this mountain, the self-consciousness, the uh, I consciousness, the sense of, uh, of self that's in opposition, that's separated from the mountain, but looking at it. And you can do this yourself in just so many simple ways. Uh, just pause in the woods and take a look at a flower or a tree and look at it and you'll see that uh, you're not really intimate with it because the mind has a lot of stories and interpretations. If you know a lot about botany, then you're in big trouble. <laughs> One thing that can help you is the breath. That is, try this. Just experiment. Just look at something really simple in nature. And uh, at the same time, be in touch with your breath. Because one of the uh, values of breath awareness is that it cuts down on a lot of unnecessary thinking. That is, if you're with the breathing, remember, not, not the exclusive being with the breath that we practice for three days, but you're in touch with the breath, but you're looking at a flower or a tree or a squirrel. Uh, just that breath being there uh, diminishes the tendency to proliferate thoughts of any kind. And then if you look at a certain point, it, you may just, it may be very, very simple. And you may see a flower or a tree. Uh, I think we've all had this experience. It kind of comes upon us when we don't expect it. I'm not including drugs here. But those of you who are know about these things, you don't need me to say anything. Okay. Uh, music. When you get home, see if you can listen to music in a very, very simple way. Hear it as just pure sound. You'll find that it's not so easy to do. You have a lot of associations with a piece of music where you heard the concert, who you were with, uh, this version of it compared to that version, version of Berlin Philharmonic, the New York Philharmonic, and this night and that night. Um, that can all fall away, though, as you attend to it. And then it's just pure sound with spaces between, and sometimes the wind instruments are prominent, sometimes the violin, sometimes the piano. It's a bit like choiceless awareness when you're sitting, and sometimes the breath is the main instrument it's playing. At other times, uh, the body, body is playing a solo because it's in pain. And sometimes they're all kind of in there, creating this symphony, or not always a symphony, I, I know. 
But so it's that kind of thing. But if you can listen to it as pure sound, it's uh, it will refresh your. I mean, many people enjoy music anyway. You don't need this, but it's a it's a somewhat different angle. Maybe people who really love music are doing what I'm saying. I know that when uh, I care about music, but I know that I until I uh, noticed how much extra there was. Uh, I wasn't quite as in touch with what was happening. Relationship. Uh, here I'm, uh, I'm coming at it from a certain angle. Uh, from the point of view of practice, often uh, we're not intimate with another person, even though superficially it may seem as if we are. We know them for a long time, we're comfortable with them. Maybe we're married to them for a long time. And we know everything about them. They know everything about us. And all that knowing is between us. We have images of them. We have images of ourselves. They have images of, of us and also of themselves. There's a lot of images. There's a, almost a jungle of notions and ideas. And, oh, yeah, there you go. Yeah, he's going to listen to the 6 o'clock news, you know, as he always does. Every doesn't change the world, but there he goes sitting there. That's my wife. Yeah. <laughs> Now, if you just become sensitive to this whole notion of image, how the mind churns out images of itself, you start to really get into a deep aspect of practice. And I would like to touch on that a little bit tonight, especially for those of you who are new. Um, we may not realize <clears throat> how central uh, this image-making is. That is a lot of what, when we talk about ego, of self, if you watch closely, you see, the mind is churning out images a lot. It's not just one image. And when we get hurt, if you look carefully, very often what you'll see is what got hurt is some image of yourself. I'll give you a few examples later on. If you start to pay attention to all these images of yourself, let's just limit it to ourselves now, not so much other people, although it's a, it's a similar issue. What you uh, begin to see, you start to get into deep practice because what we think of as being me really a series of representations. That is, they're ideas and pictures. You know, let's say if you have, you graduated from some school and there's a photograph taken by a professional photographer, you look beautiful, your teeth are nice and white, it's one-tenth of one-millionth of something of a second and it's been touched up a little framed. <laughs> it's in all your family members' wallets. It's on the piano. That, that's a representation of you. It's not you. And it may be um, accurate for part of the day, but we go through many, many changes. There are many me's that, or many selves that come through the day, all representing themselves at the time that they have the microphone, like I do now, as being the real one which I guess I'm doing. <laughs> yeah. um, we usually don't go deeper than that, or maybe we don't understand that uh, an image of yourself is a representation of yourself. It can be in words, a set of words that characterize you to yourself. I'm a such and such. Or it can be in pictures, and some of it's very, very subtle. Okay. Um, we have strong ideas 
of who we are. We've worked awfully hard to assemble some of them. We've thrown away a lot already, only to pick up new ones, new pictures, new thoughts about ourselves. We're probably in the process of churning out a new one now, the great yogi. <laughs> Not quite Milarepa yet, but on the way. If you begin to see that, if you begin to see images in the mind, you begin to see them as images and they fall away, uh, what you're left with is pure presence, you're where Li Po was. You know, it's not an idea of yourself. So in that sense, for example, sometimes uh, this is talked about in, in Buddhist circles as the great death. The great death is not the death of the body, it's the death of this, this image-making machine that we're highly identified with, that we spend a tremendous amount of energy and money and time fixing up, adorning, cultivating, maintaining, protecting, bandaging it up, all of that. And then when it starts to wear thin, we, get new, we discard it and get new ones. And our life goes like that till maybe we have ones that are not too fil fulfilling as like old timer and pop. <laughs> We'll get to that one in a few moments. <laughs> We're moving into a deep practice. Let me just hint at it, because I'd like to move to, to another subject. I mean, it's the same subject, but uh, some examples that I think might be helpful. Uh, it's a famous a teaching story in the Zen tradition, and I think many of you know it. Uh, to me, it's right to the point here, uh, where Bodhidharma, who, whether he did or whether it's legend, I don't know, but supposedly brought the, these teachings to China. And he met with the emperor, and the emperor said, uh, had heard that this was a great master from India, and told him about all of the temples that he had supported, all of the monks and nuns that he had taken care of, all the books that he had uh, purchased. And he was very, very proud of himself. And he asked Bodhidharma, how much merit do I get for this? And Bodhidharma said, none, nothing. So the emperor was a little perturbed by that. Bodhidharma was just shooting down that. It's not the generosity that was no good, but the emperor was trying to get something from Bodhidharma, some kind of confirmation or a certificate. So then he said, well, uh, what can you tell me about the Holy Dharma? Whereas these are all concepts. And again, Bodhidharma shot that down and he said, nothing holy, just vast emptiness. And the emperor was getting a little bit upset. If I can read into it, I wasn't there. And he said, who is it that's telling me all this? You know, like, who, who are you? Who are you anyway? And Bodhidharma answered, I have no idea. Now, is he an amnesiac <laughs> or a prefrontal, lo prefrontal lobotomy patient? I don't think so. He's talking about real, clear mind, where there's no need to uh, represent yourself as being anything. You just are, and the living comes from that place. That's the direction the practice is going in. Joseph Stalin, uh, who most of us don't think of as a sage, quite the contrary, 
just missed the point. He was almost there. In one of his assistant's biographies, he talks about how uh, he once went to Stalin and said, you know, some of my assistants are a real pain. They're just giving, they're so hard to work with. This one's a pain and that one never cooperates. This one doesn't listen. Stalin listened to him and he said, you know, no person, no problem. <laughs> <laughs> the next day, they were gone. <laughs> okay, he was too gross. I mean, he, you know, <laughs> he was right. But he was, he got fixated on the level of the, of, uh, the body. <laughs> A number of years ago, I re remember uh, reading about uh, the results of a survey. Uh, the survey was about which were the most frequently used lines in uh, Hollywood films. And they just put it all in the computer and they had, I don't know, thousands and thousands of frequently used lines. And the one that won overwhelmingly was, let's get out of here. Okay. Can you see that our practice, we're dealing with that. It's no accident that it's not only in the movies, it's in us too. And the practice is, not just yet, let's stay a while. Let's take a look at what it is that's making us say, let's get out of here. And intimacy has to do with that. If you remember, uh, it was suggested that so much energy is squandered in escapes. Anything that uh, is not to our liking or unpleasant or uh, frightening, etc. Uh, we have all these a whole an elaborate network of escapes so that we don't have to deal with it. We cope with it, put up with it, uh, explain it away, anything. Repress it, deny it. And what we're learning here is to see the futility of that. And remember it was mentioned that if you think of all the energy that has been dispersed and in a sense wasted on these strategies that don't work, because if they did work, we wouldn't be here you'd have a different mind. You'd have a mind that really was, uh, uh, had the power and the steadiness and the energy to take a look at whatever it is that we're now running away from in installments, a little bit each day or from time to time during the day. And our practice, little by little, is moving in that direction to correct that, to help us learn how to gather that energy, to not squander it. And it's not, uh, you don't have to swallow the Atlantic Ocean in one gulp but it's, it's more uh, moving towards it, using all kinds of methods, some of which were mentioned last night by Michael, and working skillfully to get to the point where, for example, with fear, so that we don't have to run away from fear. Wouldn't that be wonderful? If we didn't have to be afraid of fear, if it was workable? No one likes fear, but what if we had the confidence that it was workable? And it is workable because it's observable. If it weren't observable, it would be hopeless. But it is. It's something that you can learn how you can learn how to watch that energy. What I'd like to do in the remainder of the evening is talk about three very um, really intimate aspects of life. 
which we've uh, there's a tension because these are in our face, whether we like it or not, and they're also very often what we push furthest away. Aging, sickness, and death. These are, every, all of us in this room must go through this. And yet, uh, now little by little, the, the culture is starting to change its attitude towards these states. It still has to way, a ways to go. Now I know Aging is, there's now a uh, anti-aging uh, movement. You know, it's, it's become a war against aging. I don't think that's quite the point. You know, like anti-communist <laughs> or anti-nuclear uh, policy. It's, it's not, uh, aging is here to stay. And I'm not saying to not uh, enhance our health and to be able to, to live a little bit longer and with a certain quality, of course. But even the phrase gives something away. The anti-aging is a whole conferences and grants and research and asking you to contribute to the anti-aging. Okay. Uh, these three states that all of us humans, not only humans, animals, everyone faces, we all get old, we all have sickness, and we all die at some point. Um, those of you who know this, the story of the Buddha, whether, again, history or myth, I don't know, but uh, so much of the Buddha's teachings have this in it. It's, so many suttas uh, refer back to this, these three uh, prominent sources of suffering that we have. And, of course, is there a way out? If you recall, those of you who, who know the life story of the Buddha, he was very sheltered by his father because his father didn't want him to see these states, because it was predicted that he might become a holy man if he did, and he wanted him to be, become a, a king. And so he protected him from any, uh, from any kind of ugliness or pain uh, from aging, sickness, and death. But the Buddha, uh, on, in different occasions, one after the other, saw an old person, a sick person, and a dead person, and each one was an eye-opener for him because he had n never seen that before. And each time asked, will this happen to me? And of course was told, yes, it will happen to you too. But then the fourth visitor, they're called visitors, was a, a meditating yogi who was quite serene. Before that, there was uh, someone bent with age, racked with pain, someone extremely sick, and then a corpse in the street. The Buddha was drawn to this fourth messenger, and, of course, that's where the whole practice emerged. Uh, the image here is if someone who's a, a contemplative has given up worldly life and has committed himself to meditation. It's a hymn, it's a monk, but don't get caught up in that. It's about us, too, because finally it's an inner state. It's not a role. It's not necessarily a role. Uh, lay people, just as ourselves, are able to to do this practice, and the Buddha, time and time again, encourage people to reflect on the fact that they must age, get sick, and die. Uh, because he felt there was tremendous power in it, and I'd like to give you a sense of, of why that's so. The emotion that was aroused in the Buddha is referred to as Samvega. Samvega is... Uh, Quite a few things can do it, but what it arouses is a sense of urgency. Uh, you begin to see some of the difficulties in human life, uh, some of the futility of living human life a certain way. 
living in ways that are not fruitful, that just bring round after round of pain, suffering. And that arouses or can arouse an emotion, some vega, uh, which gets you to re-examine how you've been living, uh, gets you to uh, re-examine your priorities, to see uh, what have I been doing? Have I been living uh, in a way that uh, is most fruitful? Or have I been uh, squandering this precious life? And of course, from a religious point of view, all the spiritual traditions, and certainly in Buddhism, uh, what's implied is that the urgency leads you to turn to a life of practice, uh, of spiritual practice, which is not necessarily in opposition to your life as it is right now, as lay people, but it would add a whole new dimension to it if you really infused your life as it is with this awareness, with practicing being in touch, intimate, with one experience after another, attempting to learn how to do that, uh, not only would you be more alive in just an ordinary sense, the ordinary sense of that, but that's what takes you deeper and deeper. That's one of the main ways that you can go deeper in addition to sitting. And this depth uh, can take you to, to uh, I, don't, I have no idea who I am. I mean, that, that may not sound too appealing to you, especially those of you who are new but it's freedom. Uh, our problem is ourselves. We're the problem. The ego is the problem. The ego, you don't have to agree with this, check it out, can never be happy. It's not possible. I have no doubt about this. I've explored this as best I can. If you, if you think that fixing up your ego, dressing it up and making it stronger, getting high self-esteem instead of low self-esteem, a good self-image instead of a, a weak self-image, full speed ahead. They all get crushed eventually. They're unstable. They're unreliable. And so uh, Samvega always um, goes along with another emotion in the Buddhist teaching, Pasada. And this emotion is hard, both of these are hard to translate into English. Uh, but it has something to do with a clear and serene confidence that uh, there's, a, there's a way out. In other words, if, it, if the message was just, uh, life is just awful, can't you see that? Uh, then this would be a message of despair. What it is, the urgency is to wake us up, but, there, but help is on the way. And the help, of course, is the practice, the teaching, kinds of things we're doing here. And so that's uh, the positive side. That, that emotion can grow out of samvega. Uh, if you don't know that there is help, then of course you can become despondent and deep despair can set in. Uh, it seems like many, many cultures, it's not just ourselves, avoid this for exactly that reason. They don't want to arouse those emotions. The Buddhist teaching right from the start uh, brings it up. And there are contemplations, all kinds of meditation techniques, uh, many, many of them, all of which are designed uh, to remind you that you uh, will age, that uh, you will get sick. And of course, the sickness here is the one that uh, leads to death and that you will die. That is, it's, if done skillfully, what it does, it can bring many, many benefits. 
Um, once a year, I offer this at the Cambridge Insight Meditation Center. We have a, a practice group on learning how to live and learning how to die. It's about this. And uh, at first, I didn't think anyone would come, or very few. It's actually, actually a lot of people are interested and are willing to take a look. But it's not for everyone, and it has to be at the right time. If you've had a lot of losses and you're, uh, there's a lot of sadness in your life, or if you have a lot of ups and downs, uh, or other reasons as well, this may not be a good time. I'm, I'm just going to mention it tonight. It's not saying you have to do it. But if done properly, uh, this is a method that has been a staple of the Buddhist practice for thousands of years. It's not new. It hasn't been taught a whole lot. It's usually mentioned uh, in the West. But I, I see signs that it's coming in uh, because nothing has changed. Okay, so this is to arouse uh, energy. Here are some of the benefits that can come from it. You can take up a simple contemplation. Um, Uh, just that I must age, or uh, I must die. Uh, I'm not exempt from that lawfulness. It's inevitable. I'm subject to that lawfulness as well. Just taking that thought up and hearing it, hearing what that's about. You can uh, even do it while you sit. You just, while you're with the breath, turn it over in your mind and allow it to work on you and to understand. Hmm. Uh, no one's exempt from this? No, no one. Everyone must age. Everyone must get sick. Everyone must die. Yes. Okay, now, those three very powerful existential facts uh, are obvious, aren't they? And yet, the tension between how close they are and how hard we work to keep them at a distance, uh, I'll deal with that, but that's, that's way at the end of the road. Not just yet. The tension between how obvious they are and how universal it is. It applies to all of us without exception. That tension brings a lot of suffering and uh, often we become kind of um, intimate strangers with ourselves. After all, we're with ourselves all the time and yet if you take a close look and, I, and I've, maybe this retreat has helped you see that, sometimes we don't know ourselves so well. And illusion, delusion can be a thinking that, oh yeah, I know myself really well. Uh, yeah, I'm, I don't fool myself. You might see that there's a lot of self-deception. And in these three areas, uh, there's not much help offered, although, as I say, it's starting to change. Um, other ways in which Samvega and um, Pasada are aroused, and for me, this has been more powerful and the formal methods. I've done, there are many, I'm not going to go into them tonight, ways in which you intentionally reflect on uh, these conditions in life or these inevitabilities. But life itself, life itself is teaching us all over the place. Uh, wherever you look, you see signs of it. It could be a leaf falling. You turn on the news, there's always someone who's dying, someone who has died. Uh, you see signs of it in your own family, friends, wherever you live. Um, Life is teaching 24 hours a day. Uh, we're not perhaps such eager students of the course. Until it happens close to home. When it happens close to home, sometimes that's the way in which we wake up. But very often it wakes us up temporarily and then we go back. We're lulled again into 
Uh, yeah, I know, I know. Bhagavad Gita says that uh, one of the most amazing things in life is how, um, in spite of the fact that it's so obvious that everyone must die, we're all living as if that's not so. You see, we're on the Titanic. I don't know if you know that. The, the Titanic was on the Titanic. Planet Earth is the Titanic. It's nice, we, we pin it all on this poor boat. But we're doing the same things, we, you know, getting dressed up in our finery, going down to the main ballroom, dancing around, falling in love, forgetting about anything, and we don't know what's going to happen. This is a real upper, isn't it, this talk? <laughs> It gets worse. <laughs> okay. Let's take aging. You take it. Um, the body must age. Uh, there's no question about that. Uh, and if you're alive, the body is constantly aging from the moment you're born. It's the aging process begins. Do we really need science to con uh, prove this? We can see it. But the mind is not necessarily coordinated with that fact. And so, as the body starts changing, and if uh, living ages the body, the, the physical structure must age, uh, but the mind doesn't necessarily grow in the same way. Uh, and if we have a hesitancy in seeing this, then what happens is the body starts to... The, the body doesn't care whether we get it or not. The body is going to age anyway. But then the mind uh, may not get it at all. In other words, we may have images that are quite outmoded, that, have, uh, that are not in step with what's actually happening right to us. It's immediate. We can, if we would take a look, we sort of know, but not really. Here's, uh, uh, let me give you uh, an example that's close to home. It happened to me. Uh, getting on the, in Boston, they call the public transportation the T. And I was at the dentist, and you have to know that. And I get on the T, and a number of you, all of you from Cambridge, you can go to sleep now. I know you've heard it. It'll take about three minutes, and then I'll ring the bell, and we'll get back <laughs> to other stuff that you've already heard. <laughs> and I got on the, on the, uh, on this, uh, on the T, and it was crowded. I'm holding on to a, a strap or whatever. And a young woman, I would say 22, 23, looks at me, smiles, gets up and gives me her seat. So, thank you, I sit down. I assume she's getting off at the next stop. But the next stop comes, she's not getting off. <laughs> and then the next stop and the next stop, she's there, you know, for I don't know how long, but, uh, and finally it hit me. She saw me as someone, an, an older person, a senior citizen, uh, someone, uh, you know, pop, gramps, you know, <laughs> old timer. Take a, lo take a load off your feet. And uh, I sat down. When I realized that, the mind started, got hysterical. You know, uh, it just was, what's going on here? I've ever, you know, I've been doing all this yoga, eating na natural foods. I look, 
I've been told I look younger than my age. It must be due to the dentist. I must look older. And there, it was really, I was, there was upset going on. And uh, she's standing there smiling, and, and I was, she does a kind thing, and I'm miserable. Okay. So, because I'm such a super-duper practitioner, though, I remembered, and I took a look at it. And I, it fell away, and I had a good laugh at my own expense. You know, I could see that a certain image that I didn't even know I had was just smashed into to bits. There it was on the floor. Uh, Larry, the, the jaunty, bouncy, sportsy, youthful 65-year-old. Uh-uh. You look 65. Okay. And so, I mean, I was doing, I thought I was doing work on that anyway. I thought I was Mr. Natural and doing all that kind of accepting and, uh, uh, you know, following the Dharma and so forth. And then there's another problem that comes up. I got so good at working with being natural about aging that again on the T, this just happened a couple of days, so you can see I'm still in process very much. So don't get discouraged. Or maybe that's disappointing in you. I don't know. Um, this happened just a little bit before coming up here. I was on the tee, uh, and someone comes in, and uh, he had the world's worst wig on, an older man, an older gentleman. And I'm not, I'm not down on wigs, uh, you know, or cosmetics, or dying hair. I don't want, I'm not trying to bring in a new Puritanism and, you know, uh, sort of uh, a, a fascistic, natural, everyone has got to be exactly the way they, the, uh, God made them. I'm not saying that. But this was the worst wig I had ever seen. You know, it was just, there was no gray hair in it, but it was very dark hair. But no human being has hair like that. It didn't fit well. And what, I don't know what kind of fibers it was made of, but, and, and what went through my mind was, you old fool. You know, just sort of, uh, why don't you accept how you are? Can't, you know, this is just so stupid, you know, just, uh, it's embarrassing, you know, sort of, and what kind of a woman do you think is going to be attracted to you looking, the, looking this way? Uh, for goodness sakes, accept your age, it's so much easier, there are a lot of nice things about aging too, it's not all bad news and blah blah blah, okay. And then I took a look at that, because I'm such a super duper meditator, and it fell away, and I took a look at this person, and there was an intimacy there, and I, I really saw the person. Before that, I, my mind was really wearing the wig. I didn't see him at all. <laughs> and I saw deep sorrow and deep pain, and I saw probably, I don't think this is an, a, a too uh, out, outrageous an, an interpretation, this was his way of trying to make himself happier. You know, and it was not a good way. I don't think it worked. But I, I felt my heart went out to him, and I just felt I had a totally different relationship to him. Whereas before I saw him as a buffoon, I wasn't relating to him as a person at all. And I was able to connect, but I was only able to connect because all those thoughts fell away about who he was, which is not who he was. So you see, uh, these ex so um, you can learn how to age from the aging process itself. There are formal meditations, but life will teach you. You have to be willing to learn. Um, Michael, can I spill over? I know you all love the walking meditation so much, but 
Would you forgive me if we if you lose about ten minutes or so for something like that? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Whoever laughed that way is correct. Yeah. Yeah. Now you can just have tea. You don't even have to bother with walking. <laughs> So the practice is to practice with yourself as you are. Intimacy in this situation is to be with yourself as you are. And if the body must age, and it must, then can we learn from it? Because if the, the body must age, but the mind needn't, the mind doesn't have to age. In other words, the mind can stay fresh and full of joy right to the end. I don't, now and then you see that in a person, and sometimes they're not even a meditator, they've never even heard of anything resembling what we're doing. Maybe they had, I don't know what, good conditioning, good parents, a lot of good things happened to them. But we're not waiting for it to be a matter of luck. Our practice is the practice of seeing this and, and practicing with it. Typically there's fear, of course. And then we're back to what Michael was talking about last night. And what you might have to look at is the fear of aging. And you might have to look at, there, when it comes up, strong bodily sensations that are a sign of the fear and ideas in the mind, of, typically in the future, about where this is all leading to, what's going to happen to you, and how you'll end up. In the meantime, you may be okay right here and now, have everything you need, even have a nice life. But the mind can transport you into a future that isn't here yet, uh, and then you're suffering unnecessarily. Sickness, same thing. In uh, Buddhist, in Dharma circles, uh, we uh, of course, no one is encouraging anyone to get sick. By all means, take good care of your health, uh, and I hope you, all of us have healthy and long lives. But uh, the truth is that no matter how hard you work to take care of yourself, it's inevitable that you do get sick. And this sickness, uh, and I mean sometimes it's sickness on the way to dying, but sometimes it's just ordinary sickness, even just the cold, the flu. Um, the Dharma way is to see it as a gift. Again, it's, it's not to try to get sick, but if you are sick, to see it as a gift, as just as aging can be a gift. And I really learned this from uh, the same monastery that Michael uh, talked about last night uh, in Thailand uh, with Ajahn Mahabua. When I arrived there, um, I had a whole romantic scenario. Larry goes to the Thai forest monastery, has his own little hut in the middle of the forest, meditating and with the great Ajahn Mahabua. And he was. He was really just a, an extraordinary individual, an extraordinary uh, teacher. Uh, but almost immediately, I came down with just about everything. I had uh, dysentery. I was feverish. Uh, one of my uh, tooth broken half broke off and fell off. I was miserable. And uh, I was alternating between throwing up and letting it out the other end and uh, and worrying about my tooth, and would this be an infection, and, uh, and sometimes being delirious with the fever. And, and I went to him, and through translation, he speaks no English, um, 
he wasn't upset at all. He was just relaxed, and he was quite relaxed with my illness. Uh, and he said, you know, you've tried everything, you know, which I had. I had brought stuff with me just in case, a whole, uh, you know, an armory full of uh, things to do. And I'd used some of the Thai stuff. Nothing worked. And he said, you know, we've seen this before. Uh, you'll be okay. Uh, you've done everything you can. Now I think you have a choice. You can get discouraged and go home and talk about your wonderful week in the Thai Forest Monastery <laughs> at parties, you know. Uh, or you can go back to your meditation hut and practice with exactly what it is you just described to me. And he was so uh, decisive and confident that it could be done and very, very encouraging and relaxed. It's like he had no doubt that it's no big deal. And so I told him, but I can't sit. I mean, and he said, you don't have to sit, just meditate lying down. Uh, observe the sensations, see what the mind, everything we've been talking about, it, no different. Same Vipassana meditation instructions. And what you're doing is you're, you're watching the life of the body as close as you can get to it. Uh, you're intimate with what we call illness. And of course, right away, what you begin to see is that a big part of the problem is the mind, because the mind has pictures of what's happening to you and conclusions. Now, some of them have intelligence. It might suggest, you know, going to an emergency room or doing this or that. But what he was saying was, it'll pass in a while, and if we see that it's more serious, we'll rush you to a hospital. But right now, I, th I think it would be fine for you to keep practicing. And I would check in with him. And in one sense, I was miserable. In another sense, I had some extraordinary, extraordinarily deep and joyful experiences of meditation. They come and they went. They came and went. But I saw that uh, you could work with anything, really. Everything in life is workable, even this kind of uh, miserable discomfort, if you have the right attitude. And so, um, if you get sick, if you develop a cold or whatever it is, don't just veg out. You know, what I've discovered uh, over the years is that even people with very strong practices, people who've been practicing for many years, who've done many three-month retreats, who've been to Asia and done intensive practice, when they get sick, forget it, you know, it's out the window. They don't practice with the illness itself. And yet this, this attitude goes back to the time of the Buddha. It's not new. So I would encourage you to do that. Let me um, read to you some, uh, I don't know how this will affect you, but uh, this has been a very, very powerful, I've reread this many, many times. It's from one of my teachers, her, her name is Vimala Takar, she's an Indian woman, and uh, she doesn't travel anymore, so we've been corresponding for, I would say, almost 20 years now, and I've received a lot of help from her. But this is from, uh, I wrote down something that she once said. It's her own memory. And it's, it's about illness moving into death, and it's about our practice, I think, and it's about intimacy, and it's about uh, uh, a mindful, living mindfully, the art of living mindfully. This is Vimala speaking. I recall a moment in the life of an elderly saint whom I held in the highest esteem, Saint Tukroji. He was suffering from cancer. I went to see him in his ashram. He was entirely illiterate. He knew as well as everybody else there that death was at hand. I had known since my childhood that he woke up at about three in the morning, 
He kept up the routine even when death was so near. He would tell, uh, he would tell the doctor and the nurse in perfect composure, please put me in a sitting position, please sponge the body, change the linen and the bed sheets, light up the lamp and the incense sticks. It's, it is time now for me to go into meditation. And this went on until the end. I paid another visit to his room. The nurse helped him to sit up. He was a, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing it correctly, a Vaishnava devotee or Pandari in the Maharashtra. Such a devotee puts some sandal paste on his forehead after he has taken his bath. And so he asked the attendant to bring the sandalwood paste. When the unguents were brought, he asked the, the, the attendant, where is the mirror? Do you think because I'm going to die, it will do if I put the mark on my forehead in any haphazard way I like? Do bring the mirror also. As long as I'm alive, I'm thoroughly alive. And when I shall die, I shall die just as thoroughly. At the moment, I am very much alive and shall sing my prayer songs in full style. This is Vimla speaking again now. So he must have the mirror placed in front of him. He knew well enough that death was near. He knew the day and the time when it would arrive. There could not be a physical condition more critical than the one facing him at the time. He had shrunk to a mere skeleton. He would vomit blood. But what an air of grandeur that was there in his manner when he said, as long as I'm alive, I'm fully alive. Please put the mirror before me. And his grand manner as he put the sandal paste on his forehead was an entirely amazing sight. It shook me to the roots. He would not neglect the present moment because the hour of death was approaching. Get it? Maybe we should just end with that, that uh, as a, a reflection, take a few moments of, of silence. May we all continue to look into ourselves. May we see things exactly as they are. May such clear, direct seeing free us from all forms of limitation. Okay, thank you.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.